All right. Well, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be continuing in our study through the book of John. And this morning, I uh, bit off a big chunk of Scripture, the entire 15th chapter of John. So I hope you didn't have anything planned this afternoon. No, just kidding. Here's how chapter 15 fits within the flow of John's reasoning up to this point. In chapter 14, John is eager for us to see the interconnected nature of God and his people in the work of redemption. In John 14, 19 through 20, he quotes Jesus as saying, Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That day he references is when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He also explains in chapter 14 that because Jesus is the Father and because we are vitally connected to him through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that power will flow through this interconnected linking chain of vital relationships resulting in greater works being done through the church to the glory of God. He is speaking about power and vital connectedness when he says in chapter 14, pray anything in my name and I will do it. So when we zoom out and take in the view from 30,000 feet, the big themes being discussed right before we jump into our text for this morning in chapter 15 are these. Jesus is explaining and seeking to establish firmly in the minds of his disciples where life and power in the church come from and, importantly, what they lead to. Namely, fruitfulness in continuing the mission of Jesus to win and make disciples. So that brings us to chapter 15. In the first half of the chapter, Jesus is going to employ the analogy of a grapevine and its branches to elaborate on those same points from chapter 14, where life and power come from and what they lead to. And then in the second half of the chapter, Jesus will explain why the church in every age and in every culture will be opposed and hated and persecuted. And at first, these might seem like two different ideas that have just kind of been mashed together in chapter 15. But really, they are part of a unified whole. And that unified whole is this. Being united to Jesus, the true vine, will of necessity mean separation from the world. And both the evidence of our union with Jesus and our separation from the world confirm that a Christian is truly abiding in Christ. Being put at peace with the Father through Jesus will mean to some extent that we are put at odds with the world. And so he wants to make this plain clear. He's going to talk about our connection to, G to Father through Jesus by way of the Holy Spirit, but he's also going to make explicit that the Christian life is also one marked by separation from the world. So this morning, though, we're going to focus on the first half of that and not really the second half. I just didn't have time to get into the second half much. And that's okay. I think we have covered that in other portions of the Scripture, but just know that for now. Part of what Jesus wants his disciples to know and understand is that idea of separation as well. 
But I was really drawn by the Spirit into thinking more about what he has to say about the vine and the branches in the first half of the chapter. And as I was reading, I invite you to follow along with me in your Bibles. By my count, the word abide appears 10 times in verses 1 through 16 and the first half of chapter 15. And so that's going to be an important term to understand. But first, let's read these verses and then we'll talk about what it means to abide in Christ. Uh, Chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, verse 4 says this. It says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And verse 5, of course, famously says, Apart from me you can do nothing. And what these two verses are talking about and they're emblematic or representative of a number of other different verses in that block of Scripture, is what we just talked about, where life and power come from. Where does life come from? Well, it comes from being vitally connected to the true vine, Jesus. Where does power come from? The same. The power is flowing like sap through that vital connection, coursing with life. The Greek, so really, and again, this word abide, that in my translation occurs 10 times. Uh, The sense is, as we read this passage and we keep bumping up against this term abide, is that what Jesus is talking about is not peripheral. He is not talking about a thing that is marginal. He's not talking about a thing that's optional in the Christian life. 
he is talking about something that is so fundamentally, foundationally important that we have to pay attention to it as such. And so really the question is, what does it mean to abide in Christ? The Greek word translated here as abide is meno. Any, any Greeks in the audience? Okay, we'll just assume I got that pronounced correctly then. Men-o. And it means to live, continue, or remain. So to abide in Christ is to live in him or remain in him. And this abiding or remaining in Christ is the source of life and power in each individual Christian as well as the church. Paul, in his writings likes to describe a person who has, being, who has been saved as being in Christ. Uh, he used that expression in Christ or some form of it 164 times in his letters to describe the work of salvation. When I p- see that picture in Christ, the mental image I have in my own mind is of Noah and his family in the ark. You know, God's wrath was poured out on the ark but those who were within the ark were safe. And in the same way, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. Jesus was not spared. The full force of God's wrath fell on Jesus on the cross, but those who were in him were safe. And just as the ark rose up above the wrath, it floated on top of the water, so too did Jesus rise from the grave. And all those who were in him were transported through the wrath. It's the only vehicle that could. And so the church, the body of Christ, is like our ark. And so whenever you're in your Bibles and you encounter this phrase that Paul loves, he loves to say we're in Christ some 164 times, in fact. I invite you to have that mental image of Noah and his family in the ark, the place of refuge. All outside of that is subject to the wrath. So when it says, though, in this 164 times that we are in Christ, I think this expression, at least in its intent, is synonymous with the idea of abiding. Abiding just means to remain in something, to continue in something, to make your home in something. And so abiding in Christ is not a special next-level experience for super-Christians. When Jesus is talking about the necessity of abiding in Christ, he is describing the position of all true believers. How do we abide in Christ? Well, abiding in Christ is the same as trusting Jesus. It's the same as believing in him. It's the same as resting in and what he did, his atoning sacrifice on the cross. It's the same as receiving him as Lord and Savior. These are all things that are descriptive of our active abiding in Christ. In 1 John 2, 4 through 6, knowing Jesus is described as synonymous with abiding in him. So when Jesus speaks of the necessity of abiding in him, he is speaking about the necessity of being saved. And the difference between those who abide and those who do not is the difference between those who are saved and those who are not. It is the difference between those who are in the ark and those who are outside of the ark. So we see that life and the power to bear fruit flow through our vital union with Jesus in the same way 
that life and fruitfulness require that a branch be connected to the vine. Verse 6 defines this negatively for us. Jesus says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, before we move on, let me first clear something up that many people have stumbled over in verse 2. Verse 2, if we back up, reads this way. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear fruit. Uh, Here, this is a concerning verse for some. Some people have stumbled over it because it seems to be saying that some branches that are in Jesus are then taken away. I think clearly... uh, what is being described here is that some branches are destroyed and others disciplined. That's the idea here. But the, thing of, but the point of concern is that idea of taking away branches that are in Jesus. So God takes away fruitless branches and he prunes the fruitful ones. He cuts away the lifeless and he cultivates those that show signs of life. He destroys and he disciplines. As Jesus said in another place, to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. That's in Luke 8. Uh, I think that is the plain meaning of what's being described here. And this, of course, raises the question, that awful question. Can a branch, a disciple of Jesus, have eternal life in union with Jesus and then lose it? And in the end, be condemned. I don't think so. And here's why. I think whenever we come to something confusing like this, it's best to let Scripture explain itself. And that interpretation would seem to contradict what Jesus said in John 10, 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So when John says that these branches that had been in Jesus were taken away, I do not think he is describing someone losing their salvation. But if this verse is concerning to anyone, I want to help that person see and understand what Jesus is saying here. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. Jesus wants your soul to rest in him. Jesus wants you to trust in him, to stop worrying and striving, and a misunderstanding here could set a soul laboring under a burden that Jesus would free you of. The key here is to understand that there is a kind of attachment to Jesus, a kind of disciple, a kind of believing that is not saving. And the difference between the two, according to Jesus, is that one abides and bears fruit and the other does not. You guys are familiar with the parable of the four soils. If you've been warming a pew for many years, I'm sure you've encountered it. The story that Jesus tells is that a farmer goes out and he broadcasts his seed. And in those days, they'd carry a pouch of seed and they would just throw it. And some of the seed fell on good ground. And it sprang up and it bore fruit. And that's a picture of a true saving faith. Where the seed fell on a heart, the roots went deep, 
it sprouted and it bore fruit. Other seeds fell on the hard-packed earth where it could find no purchase. The birds came and pecked it away and it never grew at anything. And then two of the seeds, two of the kinds of soils, fell on shallow soil with rock underneath and it sprang up quickly, but for lack of root, when the sun came out, it withered and died before it could bear fruit. And the other seed fell among the thorns, and though it also grew, the thorns grew at the same time, and it choked out the, the plant, so it never bore fruit. Now, in those four soils, only one is descriptive of a saving faith. Only one is descriptive of somebody who abides and bears fruit in Christ. But two of them did show evidence of something springing up. There was something there. And it had the appearance of vitality, but in the end it was proven to be all pretense. It never got to the place of bearing fruit. And in the Gospel of John, we have seen throughout our study of John up to this point something very similar. In his Gospel, John points out that there are believers who are not true believers. Way back in chapter 2, we read, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So here was something that had the appearance of belief, and John even calls them believers, but what they believed in was not the fullness of who Jesus was. They're not true believers. And in John 6, we read about the fact that there are disciples who are not true disciples. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They followed him for a time, but they failed to abide. They failed to bear fruit, so they were taken away. And, of course, there are the chosen 12 disciples who Jesus himself personally chose, but one of them is a devil, Judas. And in the same way, I think there are branches who are not true branches. They are in Jesus in a sense, but they fail to abide or bear fruit. And so they are ultimately taken away. I think John himself in the book of 1 John provides the best commentary on this. He says in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, that word continued is the same Greek word as abide. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So when John says that if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, that word continued again is the same as abide or remain. One of the proofs of salvation is perseverance, a continued, sustained abiding in Christ. This is what authenticates a true saving faith from someone who merely had the appearance of it. Those who persevere have faith in Jesus, and those who do not never did. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Okay, so there's that. I think, that, I think that's a really important thing to understand. A lot of people have stumbled over that verse too. And so I'd like to bed your worries back down. But the main overall thrust of this passage that Jesus is putting in front of us, though this whole analogy, is that he wants you to test, to soberly evaluate your connection to the true vine. 
he wants you to test to see if your connection to him is vital in coursing with life. Uh, he, he does not value, Jesus never does, cheap consecration. Uh, he does not want us to um, sleep if we're in danger. He wants us to soberly evaluate, run a diagnostic, test and see. And the way that he invites us to do that is by looking at the visible evidence of the life and power coursing through the vine. And the word for that is the fruit. Abiding is one thing, and one of the proofs of an abiding faith that we're abiding in Christ is that we bear fruit. Again, in the parable of the soils, the one that bore fruit was the one that is descriptive of a saving faith in Jesus, a continued, sustained abiding in Jesus. And so Jesus does want us to be sober and to um, evaluate, to understand and take a good hard look at our connection to him. In verse 8 he says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So prove, that's the language of verse 8. There's a confirmation there. This is what Jesus wants us to see and evaluate. The presence of fruit proves that our attachment to the true vine of Jesus is vital and coursing with life. And the word fruit appears eight times in these verses, nearly as many times as the word abide. Abiding in Christ is the inner reality that finds outward visible expression in fruit bearing. It's a bit like when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was teaching on the light. He says, you are the light of the world and let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The light that is within us finds outward expression in good works that are visible to others and to ourselves. So we've already defined what is meant by abiding in Christ, and now we have to define what is meant by bearing fruit. And I don't think there's any great mystery here. Uh, in the natural world, we all understand what it means to be a fruit of a certain plant. A certain plant produces fruit of a certain type. This is why in James 3, after pointing out from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, James then asks, kind of sarcastically, can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Jesus said something very similar in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And with that in mind, it seems that just as certain plants bring forth certain fruits, fig trees, figs, grapevines, grapes, pine trees, pine cones, so too will Christians bring forth Christ-likeness. Non-Christians cannot bear that kind of fruit. It is not in their nature. We all bear fruit according to our nature. 
Galatians 5, 19 through 22 is sort of a commentary on this. Of course, Galatians 5, 22 is where we find the fruit of the Spirit. But before that comes these words. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so what these two verses shoved up next to each other are saying is the fruit of one tree is this, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer are these things. The tree produces a certain kind of fruit. So we understand this idea of fruit this way. Fruit bearing, at least as the Bible envisions it and it describes it, is the outward visible expression of an inner spiritual reality. Bad fruit is born of a bad tree. And the good fruit that God would grow off of our branches if we are connected to the true vine of Jesus are the outward expression of the inner transformation that comes through the Holy Spirit. I am uh, struck by verses 7, 9, and 11 here in what Jesus says. Verse 7, he says this. This is really what's flowing through the vine. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There it says, if my words abide in you. That's part of the sap that's flowing. Verse 9 says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, verse 10, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So what life-giving sap is described in these verses as flowing from the vine of Jesus into the branches of the church? The word of Christ, verse 7. The love of Christ, verse 9 and the joy of Christ, verse 11. And this is very similar to the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's striking to me that the outward fruit of keeping Jesus' commands, mentioned in verse 10, is linked in Jesus' mind with the idea of an inner abiding in his love. And this struck me because in Matthew 22, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, all the commands of God, all of them in total, can be summed up in these two. They all hang off of these two, that you're to love God and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus links the idea of love and command keeping. And the true mark of a saving faith is not merely that we know the truth, but that we are living the truth that we know. This is the outward fruit of obedience that commit to commands 
that bears witness to the sincerity of an inner transformation, an inner belief that the words of God, his commands, are flowing in us through with the Holy Spirit. This is why James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Knowing the truth matters, of course, but really it only matters insofar as it informs how we actually live our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his life on the rock. And then in verse 26, Jesus describes the foolish man who builds his house on the sand, not as someone who was ignorant of Jesus' words and teachings, but rather as someone who heard his words and didn't do them. So Jesus stresses obedience to his commands as one of the fruits that will cluster on branches that are vitally connected to the true vine. Knowing the commands of Jesus, knowing the content of the Bible is good, but it's only good insofar as it informs how we actually live. We shouldn't be impressed by somebody who can quote the Bible but doesn't live it. Ultimately, when we stand before the throne, and ultimately the proof of our abiding and our fruit-bearing will in some way be linked, very importantly, to this idea of obedience. It's also striking to me that verses 12, 13, and 17 command us to love others sacrificially. Again, just as I read the Bible, I become more and more uh, convinced that that statement that we've adopted as a church, that we are a people who love God, love others, and love in action is just right on. It is so in keeping with what the Bible says about what followers of Jesus will value and love. It says here that the father is the vine dresser who prunes the branches so that they bear more fruit. Uh, nobody likes pruning. <laughs> pruning is painful. It means that some things that we treasure will be removed from our lives. Sometimes it may involve suffering. Uh, but there is pur purpose in pruning, of course, and that makes all the difference. And this purpose is to bring forth more fruit. In James 1, it says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The pain of childbirth brings forth a new baby. A wildfire results in new growth. And things like faith, steadfastness, and maturity in Christ are the sweet fruit of bitter days. Very often God's plan to make us more fruitful is to take us through a trial. Through selective pruning, God will take away anything in our lives that is keeping us from bearing fruit. The branches that bear no fruit are destroyed, but branches that bear fruit are disciplined or pruned so that they will bear more fruit. I'm struck here by the language of Hebrews 12. It says, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time 
as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. This is the idea that uh, I think sometimes when we're going through a period of time where God is chastening us in some way, he's pruning us, we feel like God is against us, <laughs> that this is evidence of his disapproval or maybe even his hatred or his, uh, his wrath is pouring out on us or, or something like that. But really the opposite is true, and any parent knows this, that when you spank your child, it is not because you hate your child. When you discipline your child, when you take something away from them that is not good for them, the reason why you do that is the opposite of how they might be tempted to feel about it. You're doing it because you love them, and you want them to thrive and be healthy. But very often it feels like the opposite of that, at least from the child's perspective. And I think that that's very often what pruning feels like. God will take away anything that is keeping us from bearing fruit. And that very often feels like this disciplining of a father. But the great news is, is that those who disciplined are, are children of God. Now I want to finish with this observation. Uh, these verses are bookended by two statements. This block of Scripture in the Bible about the true vine are bookended by two statements that are worth noting as we close. The first is what Jesus says in verse 5. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. <laughs> Please let that sink in. Let, let this be like a motto for us, that the, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And we've seen this kind of language from Jesus before in our study through John. Jesus teaches this truth again and again to his disciples, and in fact, he has been modeling it before them throughout our entire study of the Gospel of John up to this point. In chapter 5, he says, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. Nothing. There's that word again. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Later in that same chapter, he says, By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. In chapter 8, he says, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. In chapter 12, he said, I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. In chapter 14, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And in chapter 9, this truth is underscored by the man healed from blindness. He says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now what Jesus has been modeling for us throughout the Gospel of John up to this point is that Jesus, who, was, who is God and existed before the foundations of the earth were laid. He was with God in the beginning, and it was through him that all things were made. In coming to the earth, in, in the incarnation, when he took on human flesh and was born at Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, he laid aside those, the independent use of those amazing divine attributes. And he lived, during the years of his earthly ministry, as all Christians should aspire to live. He was connected to the true vine of the Father. And the Father flowed through him, and much fruit 
was born in, in Jesus into the days of his earthly ministry. And he modeled that for us. He modeled for us the dependence and trust on the Father that now he calls us to place in him. And then at the end of this section, he invites us to demonstrate that same dependence and faith and trust in him through prayer. So he begins by saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he says these two things. In verse 7, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So two truths are here on the table for us to see. We can do nothing apart from Christ, but we can do anything through him. (laughs) This is really what he's saying here. You can't do anything apart from me. But in me, guys, the sky is the limit. Amazing things are possible because of the vital connection that the church has to me. D.L. Moody once said, next to the wonder of seeing my Savior will be, I think, he's talking about when he gets to heaven, next to the wonder of seeing my Savior will be, I think, the wonder that I made so little use of the power of prayer. These promises of Jesus surrounding prayer are staggeringly, sweepingly generous. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done. If my word abides in you, you abide in me, ask whatever you wish, and it's going to be done. In light of such an invitation from God, isn't it amazing, State Road, how little we pray, and for what little things we ask in prayer? Isn't it scandalous? We pray little, and when we pray, we pray for little things. All around us here in Aroostook County, in our families, at our places of work, and so on, we see the tragedy of people who are missing it. They don't know God, and therefore they don't yet understand the meaning, the meaning of this life or hope beyond this life. And that's a tragedy. And by God's grace and in response to our prayers, we hope to bring many who are far from God into a saving relationship with Him. But do you know what else is a tragedy? That there are so many within the church who are also missing it. Although they know God as their Savior, and there is some fruit to show, they are just kind of content with that. And they're not hungry for more. How little do we ask of God? In verse 7 through 8, it says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. How little is God glorified by a church that asks nothing of him? And how small a view of God is betrayed by a church that doesn't really ask big things of him. It betrays a small view of God. 
Uh, years ago, I was talking to a friend, and my friend confessed that uh, she didn't want to um, share something as a prayer request because she knew that God, this, this, around the world, there's so much tragedy. There's so many awful things that are happening to people that really on the, on the grand scheme of things, what she was going through was small. And she thought it's not really worth bringing to God as a prayer request. And when I pointed out to my friend, I said, you know, if you go to the hospital and you're admitted into the emergency room, they, they, they assess you according to a triage system. And they'll say, well, you know, how, what's your pain level like? How immediate and necessary is it to get you in to see care right now? Or can it wait while we see other patients who more urgently need care? Now, why does a hospital assess people using a triage system? It's because the hospital is limited in many ways. A hospital is limited in the number of doctors they have, the number of beds they have. There's only so many hours in a day. They only have so much that they can devote to each individual patient. And so they have to assess people according to their level of care that they need. That's a triage system. And when we come to God and we say, well, my problem, I won't bother God with that. Do you see what we're betraying in our minds about how we think about God? We're saying God is finite. God is busy dealing with bigger things. God is busy dealing with bigger problems somewhere on the other side of the globe. My car problems, how does that stack up to somebody who's living in war-torn genocide country? <laughs> it doesn't, but that's not the point. Our God is so big, he is so vast. He is such a perfect ocean of care and concern. He is the God of the shallows and the deep alike. In Philippians 4, of course, it says, whatever our concerns are to cast them upon God, whatever they are, it doesn't matter if they're the most dire, awful thing that's ever happened to a human being or it's just something that you woke up and are anxious about. He is so perfectly infinite. He is the God of the shallows and the deep. We need to constantly be bringing him things. But this really does, I think, um, the way we pray, the way we talk to God is one of those truths that's really important to consider that what we believe finds expression in what we do. And what we do reveals what we actually believe. And so it is with prayer. This is one of the most important fruits that Jesus mentions here in John 15. One of the most important fruits of a vital connection with Jesus is that we are drawn into this prayer relationship with him. And at the heart of those prayers are not just the little things. Please don't hear me wrong. God is honored when we bring him the shallow and the deep stuff alike. He's an infinite God. He can handle it all. We should just be talking to God continuously. <laughs> but I do think that it, in the way we pray, when it says that if my word abides in you and you abide in me, pray whatever you wish, Jesus puts that first to say that if 
the concerns that I have talked about in my word, the reason why I came was to save sinners. Is that present in our prayers? Is those things that I have talked to you about and that are closest to me, are those things present in what you're asking of me? As well as the other intercessory things, as well as the things that are going on in our life. I think that the way we pray is, is very revealing about some things that we, um, of how we think about God generally. And I was certainly um, brought up short by that this week and felt convicted about it and wanted to share that with you. Well, let's close with this. Let me draw before the Lord now and, and just thank him for speaking to us through his word. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this analogy that Jesus uses about the vine and the branches. And Father, you, you have shown us all this about abiding and fruit-bearing so that we could know and feel assurance that our connection with Jesus is vital in coursing with life. But Father, if there is anyone right now who has who is with us or is listening to this online and is not bearing fruit. They have an appearance of godliness that has no marks of the power. Father, I pray, Lord, that somehow in these bumbling efforts of mine, you will stab their hearts wide awake. God, make them aware of your grace that's offered. Make them aware, God, that there is something deeper, more real, more true. That there is a vital connection to the true vine and it can be theirs and that they will bear fruit. That a new inner reality will find outward expression in a new way of living. That the inner treasuring of your things would find a, a life marked that just by transformation, a more excellent way. And God, if there are those who are listening and they are already connected to the true vine, Father, I pray that in all of this talk, Lord, that you would affirm them and assure them of their connection to Jesus. By the Holy Spirit within them, God, I pray that you would Help them to know and to see that nothing can separate those who are in Christ Jesus. None, and Father, all the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, not those that are in him. Father, we know that persevering to the end is linked to our abiding and our fruit bearing. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might that we might have great endurance and patience for the years ahead and that you would bear much fruit in each of our lives individually and through our church here at State Road. Father, we're thankful for this time and for the way you have spoken to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.